bold vision, inspirational leadership, drive, determination, creativity. Welcome to Secrets of Staffing Success, a podcast where we talk to innovators and thought leaders in the staffing industry to discover the strategies and tactics that make these top performers stand out. And here are your hosts, the co-CEOs of Haley Marketing, Victoria Kenward and David Cerns. Imagine you get a call from a big client. You haven't spoken with them in years. Now they need you to replace all their workers in one of their facilities, and you have just days to get it done. Sound a bit terrifying? Not for Rob Huffmaster and his team at Huffmaster Companies. It's all in a day's work. On today's episode of Secrets of Staffing Success, Rob tells us all about his family business and how they've become a world leader in crisis staffing. Rob also shares powerful insights from his executive MBA program at Northwestern University and his views about the keys to creating lasting differentiation in the staffing industry. He even shares a few lessons learned as a professional race car driver. Secrets of Staffing Success is brought to you by Haley Marketing. This August, 2021, Haley Marketing celebrated our 25th birthday. That's a quarter century of serving the staffing industry. And as part of the celebration, we did what we do best, give away lots of ideas. As a thank you for listening to our podcast, we'd like to invite you to take advantage of a very special resource. We recently celebrated our birthday with a day-long Smart Ideas Summit. We brought together many of the industry's top consultants to share their insights and advice. In total, there were 14 presentations filled with amazing ideas to help you achieve new levels of success in 2021 and beyond. And now we're making all the recordings available to you. You can check them out at haleymarketing.com forward slash 25 bash. Again, that URL is haleymarketing.com forward slash the number 25, then B-A-S-H bash. <laughs> okay, Vicki, it's time for us to uh, have a new guest on the show. Today is going to be, I think, really different. You know, for 25 years, and for everybody who doesn't know, Haley Marketing Group is celebrating our 25th birthday this August. Um, but for 25 years, we've seen Lots of staffing companies, and I don't think we've ever seen one like we're going to see today. Yeah, I'm excited to hear about it, and and also just to hear about Robin and his story. So we are speaking with Rob Huffmaster, who's vice president with Huffmaster Companies. Rob, welcome to Secrets of Staffing Success. Happy to be here. Thank you. It's my first time doing a podcast, so let's give it a whirl. Ah, we'll be gentle. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> no hard, crazy questions. I promise. <laughs> she lies. She asks all the hard ones. <laughs> That's not true. Hey, so we gave you a little intro about your company and we've got some great things in your background that we're going to get to in a lot of detail, but I led with a teaser. So tell us a little bit about HuffMaster companies and what you guys do. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're a crisis staffing and security company and we specialize in union work stoppages. So when a union decides to go on strike, we're the company that comes in and supplies the workforce and to keep the facility running and the security to protect the facility from any union picketers. So it started out as a strike security company because that was the big concern back in the 60s, 70s and 80s. Uh, Unions were very violent. And over time, they've lost power in certain ways as far as being violent, but they, they have a lot more power now in particular the healthcare segment where they know it's very difficult to replace the specialties. So we've made the transition over the last decade where we call ourselves a staffing company more than a security company. So that's why I said crisis staffing and security. And yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a wild industry. There's not many competitors. We got three healthcare competitors and uh, two to three on the industrial side. We're the only company that, that participates in both markets and we're the only company out of all of our competitors that this is our focus. So pretty much every one of our competitors, the strike crisis unit is a part of their business. Uh, The crisis uh, strike security and staffing is our business on both sides. So we built quite a team here of uh, adrenaline junkies, we call them, that thrive on when these crises happen. 
they're that they're willing to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week for as long as it takes to get a job done. So it's pretty unique. Obviously, since the start of the pandemic, there haven't been many strikes, although we are seeing a lot of activity now. So the uh, the strike model was very applicable during the, the COVID-19 pandemic for the first year. Um, and the model is is pretty simple. Um, it's, it's simple to explain, maybe hard to replicate, but essentially we fly people in from around the country to one location, we house them, we transport them to and from the facility, and then when the job's done, we, we send them out. And so it's a very controlled arrangement. It's, it has high bill rates involved. And so uh, we're able to attract a lot of a lot of applicants and recruits where other companies cannot. And because we have uh, coordinators and supervisors on the ground, we're able to uh, ensure that the that the right amount of people show up on site for each shift. So, like I said, we've been able to use that throughout the pandemic, and and now we're actually seeing quite a bit of uh, union activity coming out of it. Well, I hope we're coming out of it, but apparently not recently. <laughs> We all hope we're coming out of it. So do you think that the changes that you've experienced through the pandemic will change your business model at all? I know you're applying it, but do you, are you seeing, you know, you had to do something when there weren't so many strikes. So are you going to apply that going forward? Yeah, we, we were really worried when the pandemic started, like many people, on how this would affect our business. And we were able to transition and use that strike model for healthcare facilities. And now we call it, it's, it's our industrial staffing, Division 85 where we, we it's, it's a lot of like CDLA drivers, forklift operators, picker packers, and so on. And so what we're hoping coming out of this is that we'll be able to stick to the non-strike staffing to a certain degree, um, but we're not far enough along to, to say we have a model that we think is gonna work. I, I think his, histor- history tells us it's gonna revert back to where it used to be, and we're gonna not be, we're gonna price ourselves out because it's a very expensive proposition when you use us. So right now we're dealing in a situation where traditional staffing companies are scrambling to find people. All businesses are scrambling to find people. <laughs> so when you guys get a client, what's your recruiting model to, to be able to turn around an entire team to staff a strike? Yeah, we scramble to get people. <laughs> yeah, no, so we have an in-house recruiting department, which is, a, which is very important. So we're able to staff up to uh, about 40 recruiters. Uh, I think our peak was 50 back in 2016. And the, the, like I said earlier, since crisis is our focus, our recruiters are specialized in crisis staffing recruiting. And also, uh, since we've been doing this for 52 years, we have a great database of people that are looking for this type of work. And so before, uh, you know, before it became popular, it's the old gig economy. If there were the, that existed, uh, you know, a decade, two decades ago, people would want to just find jobs, make money for a month or two, uh, and then and then not have to work for a month or two, essentially. And so that, that, that's more of the industrial side from a healthcare perspective. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of shortages in healthcare right now, a lot of burnout under the conditions, which is, which is to be expected. Uh, but from a strike perspective, a lot of nurses will just take a couple days of PTO and fly out to a, a, to a strike. And so uh, most healthcare strikes, they're, they're very, uh, they have, the union actually has to dictate in 10 days, we're going to go on strike for one, three, five days. And so when you're recruiting people for a job like that, they know, okay, it's a three-day strike. Awesome. I can take two days of PTO, go out, make $8,000, come back and, and feel good. So there's a, just a group of nurses that would like to do that type of work. Yeah. That's excellent. What are, what are just my head spinning because it seems like uh, the ability to react that quickly, but at the same time, it's not like traditional staffing where your clients always have a need. So how do you, how did you build this into your culture, this ability to wait, 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 and go? Yeah. So one, we had to, we have to have a staffing model corporate wise that we can flex up and flex down. So we have quite a few people in our manager ranks that when we're not busy can actually go out into the field or they can fill other roles. So there's a lot of special projects type positions at HuffMaster. So we can switch people's focus so they can focus on something that if we're not busy, at least they can go out in the field for a certain job and keep as many people as employed in the valleys as possible. Um, I guess the, from a culture perspective, it just comes down to 
uh, work hard, play hard culture. So we have, we expect a lot from our employees. They they have to work a lot. They give up a lot of weekends. They give up a lot of family time nights. Uh, and so on the flip side of that, we love to try to give back as much as possible. With we don't really care about PTO policies. Nine to five means nothing to us, right? You can come in at ten o'clock. It doesn't matter. You're getting your job done. And so we try to give back in, in that way. And so. And then I guess beyond that, the, the play hard part, we try to do as many company events and, and culture initiatives as possible. It's been very difficult during the pandemic to do that under the restrictions, but uh, we're hoping we can get back to that. Yeah, it's been hard for everybody. It's interesting. Um, your company seems to mirror a lot of the culture that our company has and your terminology is almost identical. And I haven't seen that anywhere else. Very unusual. You mentioned work hard, play hard. We had work hard, play hard as one of our core values. We recently changed it to work hard, love what you do. But I also noticed that you have the win three criteria and we have the rule of threes. Do you want to explain your win three criteria? Because it's exactly what we have. Yeah. So in general, just the the core of the win three concept is, you know, we're a third generation now family business. I'm a third generation Huffmaster. My brother Ryan and I co-manage the business. My father currently owns it. And we're in this for the long game. This isn't any sort of play where we're trying to build a company and sell it to an MSP or cash out at any, any moment. This is something we all want to do for, for the long game. And so the win three is essentially trying to make sure we're focused on being successful long-term. I think it, life is about balance. And so if, if you focus on trying to squeeze profit in the short term and, and maximize profit in the short term, you're probably going to sacrifice the long-term opportunities with clients and so on. And so we talk about, it has to be a, when, when, anytime we take a job, it's got to be a win for the, uh, the client. It's got to be a win for our employees and it's got to be a win for the company. And if it's not for any three of those, we really need to evaluate whether we should take that work or not, because although it may work in the short term, it's probably going to have long-term negative ramifications. It's personally my favorite core value that we have. It resonates so much with me because so often we're taught service is about doing everything for the client and the client can never be wrong and they're always right. And I love the fact that you, that your company has the same value. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. I've seen a lot of stuff on LinkedIn recently with people that are talking a lot about that whole, you know, the client's always right. And And I think there's a shift going on right now in that mentality. So Rob, one of the other things you mentioned kind of in passing is that your company's been around for 52 years and that you and Ryan are the third generation in the business. And I was actually doing some quick Googling before our our call today. And I don't know if you know this, maybe you've got this from your executive MBA program, but only about 40% of companies successfully transition first to second generation and 13% practically one out of every 10, one every nine, make it to the third generation. Talk to us a little bit about what makes your family business work. Yeah, so I've I've definitely read about and heard those statistics before. The percentages always change a little bit, but it's the similar trend that it's it's, it's very, it's not likely to even make it to a second generation and, and very unlikely to make it to a third. And so uh, as far as making it work for our company, you know, it, it's an everyday battle for sure. You know, family businesses are very difficult. There's a lot of emotions behind it. You know, the, the owner of the company is my dad. The guy I'm running the company with is my brother. Um, trying to figure out when you need to put on what hat, right? We got to put on our work hat and then we, we still need to have a relationship outside of work. I, I honestly, I don't have a lot to say to that outside. It's just every day you work through it and communication. Um, you know, there's a lot of struggle involved in a family business. And if you're not communicating that, then it can, you can go down a bad spiral. And we, as a company, uh, my, my, my father, my brother and I have gone down that a couple of times where there's been these heart to heart conversations of like, whoa, 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 let's, let's slow down. Let's step back and make sure we're all, we're all in agreement of where we're going here. So I think that, uh, if I, if I expand, I keep going on that. Hiring talented people like is pretty much the best way to make any company work. And so I think that is one of our cores at HuffMaster is hire talented people and give them the authority to make decisions. So no HuffMaster is going in there telling anyone what to do. We, you know, we hire talent and we expect them to know what to do. And then if they need our help, we'll jump into the equation. 
And so I think that makes it attractive for a lot of people we hire because I think there are a lot of places where the ownership is a little more micromanaging of the situation. And so I believe that is probably one of the main advantages for us. But like I said, it's a day-to-day battle. <laughs> we understand. <laughs> we, David. <laughs> oh, just a little, just a little. Well, we've gone through that. So Rob, I'm even yeah. in our, our company, uh, Vicki and I are husband and wife and co-CEOs. Um, we certainly have times we go at it. Uh, occasionally, uh, the emotions will come out in a leadership team meeting and people will sit back and go, whoa, wait a minute, what's going on here? What am I what I'm allowed to say? But we've learned and probably as you and your family have learned that, yeah, you can do that, but that's a business discussion. It, it's not a personal attack. Mm-hmm. And for, for others in your organization observing it, it can take them a while to learn. One of the questions I had for you, though, is how you, you get those tense moments. And I remember we had an f- ugly family conversation because my parents were involved in our business in the early years. We had an ugly family conversation in 2002 where it was work together or Thanksgiving together. Which is it going to be? Because it wasn't working. So how do you guys keep the family bonds from being overstressed? Because you're in a really stressful business. So <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah. our business is easy by comparison. <laughs> so how do you keep that from bleeding over into Thanksgiving dinner? Yeah, uh, well, that would just go down to my mom. Uh, she put the foot down. Always the mom. And just said, <laughs> no, this is enough is enough. You guys work enough and talk about work enough. And so on any sort of birthday any holiday, it was just a hard and fast rule. That is no work conversation, which was difficult for a little bit, but uh, very refreshing once we got used to it. It's hard to turn it off when you're working with those same people that you're having dinner with. It's really, really hard to turn it off. Absolutely. I commend your mom. That's a a great rule. (laughs) So let's pivot a little bit. you, I mentioned your executive MBA. Tell, tell everybody a little bit about what you're doing and why you decided to go get an executive MBA. Yeah, absolutely. So right now I'm at Northwestern Kellogg getting my executive MBA. Um, and the reason I decided to pursue an MBA was early on, I, I think I, I put in my, my email I sent to you, we had a physician staffing division that we tried to launch a few years ago. And it, it didn't quite work out. I think we had a little success along the way, not, not what we were hoping for. And we had to make the hard decision to close it down. Um, and that was, and I had to close it down. So it was a very personal, a lot, of, a lot of relationships I built with five individuals. And I really, I reflected on that and said, where do we go wrong? Right? Like I, I, I couldn't even point to where we went wrong. It just didn't work. And so I knew from a personal skill set perspective, that I just needed to learn more. And an MBA was always kind of out in the background. My brother received an MBA about 10 years ago. So I started talking to him, started doing my own research and really felt like that it would be beneficial for me as a leader going forward to, to have a foundation of frameworks and knowledge and network because we're in this niche business, this crisis staffing business. My network is tiny compared to what a lot of industries are because there's not a lot of people that do what I do. And when we complete a job for a healthcare system or an industrial client, at the end of the job, they don't really want to talk to us afterwards because that was a bad time for them. So they're like, you just go away. We'll talk to you in three years when we have another union contract come up. And so for me, an MBA represented a network of of support, a supportive community. And Northwestern represented that community to the T. I looked at all the, all the, every executive MBA program I could and Northwestern stood out and it's, uh, it's delivered far beyond my expectations in just a very collaborative, supportive community that I've, that I've received out of it. And I've just got, I've had so many great conversations and I'm making, I feel, I know I'm making friends for a lifetime at the program. And I've already learned a lot of academics just in a half a year. Uh, I've explained it to some people. It's as if, it's organizing the business world for me. So it's not as if I didn't know what I was doing, but now all of a sudden I have a framework that I can plug stuff into to validate why I was doing it. And so instead of going on, going on my gut when I make a decision, it's all of a sudden I can actually go back. No, this is from the, you know, one of the top MBA programs in the world. It's telling me I should just run it through this, this framework. That's great. So if you had to go back and start that physician's um, placement service again, what would you do differently? <laughs> That's a tough one. And it's a tough in the staffing industry as a whole. So what I have learned in my MBA program is, is if you don't know what to do, uh, don't do it. 
right? So we have a travel nurse division and in that division, we could spend all sorts of money with operational effectiveness and trying to implement technological advances and recruiter training and so on. We could spend a lot of money, but then I have it on my list too, talking about the productivity frontier. And that would just put you on the frontier with 4,000 other staffing firms. So there's actually zero ROI to do that. So if you don't, if you can't find a spot on the productivity frontier that, that, is, that just doesn't have anyone else there, then you, there's no point to make that investment. And so unfortunately, my, my short answer would be, I think we would just not have pulled the trigger on the physician staffing one. We would have realized we don't have a unique idea and we don't have a unique angle and we don't create superior value like you know, compared to our competitors. And so if you're not creating any other more value than your competitors are, well, then that's just, uh, you're just, profits aren't going to be there at the end of the day. That's what, that's what we found out. We were doing the same thing as, I don't know how many uh, locums firms were at that time, but I'm sure it was in the, the hundreds, uh, if not 500 plus. And yeah, we didn't stand out in any way. We had a little success because we had some great recruiters and, who had some relationships, but uh, to make a company profitable, got to be doing something a little unique. Yeah, I want to talk more about that productivity frontier in just a second, but I want to just share something with all of our listeners. So back after the Great Recession and a lot of staffing companies, particularly in the light industrial world that had really been devastated by the Great Recession, were saying, well, how do we rebound? And they were looking at industries that were likely to be more recession-proof or growing faster. And so like you, they looked at healthcare. Um, Not that many got into locums, but I know a lot that tried to get into just nurse staffing or travel nurse staffing. And I remember doing some research back then on companies that attempt to do service line extensions. And it was surprising because there's, there's a belief, well, I know staffing, I know recruiting. And so my knowledge is transferable. But I think, Rob, you said it really nicely that if I don't have a unique idea, if I can't deliver superior value, don't pursue it. And the, the data on failure for service line extensions is well north of 60%. So companies are overconfident in their abilities because they're successful in area A. They look at area B without detailed knowledge of area B and they think, oh, it's the same. I can do that. So you got the lesson the painful way, but glad that it didn't hurt the business. But tell us more about this operational effectiveness and the productivity frontier and what that means. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll I'll step back a second, uh, following off what you just talked about. Um, For us, in the strike world, right, we're strike experts, we're crisis staffing and security experts. And our service line extension, our original one was trying to get into travel nursing. And so I I talk about, I learned about target attractiveness and target compatibility and creating and going through that analysis as a marketer. And travel nursing is very attractive. There's a there's just a bajillion openings out there. It's high bill rates. It looks really attractive, but you have to also look at target compatibility. Are you compatible to that market? You got to analyze competitors, and are you bringing that superior value? And if you're not, then unfortunately you have to say no to things like that. So uh, I guess I'll just circle back to what your last question was. I just rambled. Just a wanted to actually to actually talk more about what you meant by the operational effectiveness and the productivity frontier and just explaining that to people. So I think it's a concept yeah, that yeah. I haven't heard of. Absolutely. Yeah. So the, the, the productivity frontier, it'd be easy if I could share some sort of picture of it, but essentially it's a curve. And so picture on one side of the curve, you have a premium product charging a premium price. And on the other side of the curve, you have a low price product, uh, lower, lower service. And so like one of the examples we learned at Kellogg was in the furniture business, you have Ikea on that lower side, and then you have a bunch of other furniture companies that are charging a premium, but also you get you get a lot more premium services with that. So on that curve, there's untold amount of opportunity and openings on there. We don't know what those are yet, but the key is if you're going to make the investment to get to the frontier. So like on the frontier, um, if we talked about my own business, with crisis staffing, I'd like to believe that we're on the frontier in our industry because we're doing things that a lot of our competitors aren't doing. We're more advanced than they are. And we're actually the ones that are constantly pushing that frontier forward. And so we're on a frontier, it's uncrowded, there's profit. We're a profitable company. We've been a profitable company for a very long time, barring a couple of years. And so, but once you're on that frontier, 
you need to keep pushing it forward so no one catches up. And so I have an example of 2016, we're at a healthcare strike. There's a few strike vendors out there and our competitors were using paper timesheets. And we had a system called Time Station and everyone had a badge. And so one of our competitors had five people just filling out all these paper timesheets. There was a line of nurses at the end of the shift, at the end of the week, a strike week, 12 hour shift, 70 hours. And then it was just me at a table and nurses were coming up and I was scanning them. Boom, no line. They went back to, you know, they went Sunday night, got to sleep a bit earlier. And so we stand out and we invest continually to move that frontier forward. Now, on the flip side, if you're not on that frontier, if there's companies, which in the, in the general staffing world, let's just talk about healthcare travel nurse staffing. I think there's about 4,000 plus firms that do travel nurse staffing at this point. And a lot of people are talking about artificial intelligence and automation platforms and things that would, would, would potentially increase your recruiting capacity, be able to place more nurses. But if everyone does it, if there's 4,000 firms and everyone implements the same exact AI protocol, then where does that get you? It just, it just you're down $50,000, $100,000. You're not going to make anything more because there's already a bunch of people that are there. And so with this productivity frontier, it was, it was very helpful for me with our own travel nursing division to realize if you don't have a path to an uncrowded spot on that frontier, then you shouldn't make investments that would be deemed exciting and fun. Instead, you need to focus on cost savings and cost cutting and run a more efficient operation with what you have. And so if you have 50 travel nurses in the field, well, then just make sure that you, you can increase that gross profit margin on those 50 travel nurses. Don't try to focus on getting to 100 because it, it won't work. It's fascinating. I think of so many examples, like you use the IKEA one uh, and how they've sort of mastered, we're going to be low cost and everything is built around delivering low cost. And then the example, and I like that you use you, which is a highly differentiated company pushing the frontier. But in like, I'm going to look at commercial staffing where, you know, if there's 4,000 travel nurse companies, there's 10, 12, 14,000 of the 20,000 staffing companies do the commercial. Where do you think there are opportunities for those companies to push the frontier? Yeah, so it, it's about finding that spot uh, is, is the first step you got to think about. And so uh, it all comes back to strategic target, right? This is all, it's all fresh for me, learning, learning at Northwestern Kellogg. But when you're marketing, when you're looking at your business, you have to have a strategic target. It's one target. A lot of companies like to want to have two or three or four targets, but one target. And then there's an opportunistic that sits outside of that, that work will come. And so if I use HuffMaster as an example, our strategic target is allied and service union personnel. When they go on strike, that's we provide more value in that world than anyone on the planet. And so we spend all our resources now marketing wise to make sure everyone knows that. And so does that mean we don't do nurse strikes? No, we absolutely have nurse strikes. We, we get nurse strikes because we built a reputation somewhere else. People realize, well, if they can staff allied and service personnel through a strike, of course they can staff nursing. That's a lot easier. It's an easier, it's an easier strike job to complete. And so we focus, uh, you have to find what is your strategic target. And we can, we, we found that about 10 years ago in healthcare. And it was simply because we just got a little dirtier than our competition. We would, we would get our hands and knees on the ground and recruit for the harder to recruit for positions. And all of our competitors don't like to do it because there wasn't quite as much money involved in it. But at the end of the day, it was enough money for us to, to be a profitable company. And so I think companies have to step back and, and, and evaluate where are your strengths and then where can you apply that? And it could be geographical, it could be specialty-based, but it, it has to be something. It can't just be, well, we're the allied company, we're the nurse company, or even just we're the West Coast company. I think looking forward with the amount of competition that's out there, people have to be very, very narrow in what they're focused on if they want to be successful long-term. Comes down to differentiation, right? <laughs> We've yeah, we Exactly. Yeah. There, there's so many different words for it, right? But uh, yeah, at the end of the day, yeah, just you got to be different. And if you're not, then that's what I said. If you, if you can't find that differentiation, 
then then just save money. Just go go on the flip side. Just be in a more efficient organization. Don't invest in technology. Figure out ways to save money. Yeah, you so often we hear companies talk about our differentiation as service. Well, you're in a service business. That's that's table stakes. If you can't provide good service in a service industry, you're, you're in the wrong business. But beyond those table stakes, I like that you talked about, you know, is it geographic focused? Is it specialty-based focused? Our team, we just did an exercise on story branding. Mm-hmm. And we were listening to the author of the book present on the keys to building a story brand. And when you hear that phrase, a lot of people think of, well, I have to use good stories to sell. That's not really what it's about. Story branding, what it's really about is you're telling a story about the problem you solve, as you said it, Rob, better than anybody else in the world. Why for this kind of problem, you know, if you look up that problem in the dictionary, your company's name should be written there as the answer to the problem. And you're trying to position yourself around, this is the one thing we do so well. Uh, To your example of getting dirty, I remember talking to a client years ago who they did light industrial and then they got into heavy industrial. Um, They were doing, it's called stevedoring. They were doing ship unloading and they were doing stuff that like they said, their competitors wouldn't touch it. And I remember the CEO saying, I want to get out of this because the workers comp rates are insane. And I said, do you make money delivering the service? And he said, yeah. I said, do your competitors deliver the service? Like, no, they won't touch it. Like, then why do you want to get out of it? Like, you're the the only one who can do that. And then you can add on their light industrial once you have the heavy stuff. So I I love the the example you gave. And I love that lesson of really focusing on where you can make a difference and finding your differentiation in places others aren't looking. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to pivot again because you, you, in the responses to us, you gave an acronym that I will candidly admit I had to look up. <laughs> so it's G-STIC, S-T-I-C, Goals, Strategy, Tactics, Implementation, and Control. And full confession, I didn't look it up. Vicky looked up and gave me the notes. So <laughs> <laughs> tell us about what, the, what G-STIC is. Yeah, so G-STIC is essentially, when I look at my first two marketing classes I took at Kellogg, um, Alexander Chernev is the professor there. He's one of the leading authorities in the marketing world, tried to sum up, well, how do you, how do you keep marketing campaigns and initiatives organized? And so G-Stick is one of the easy ways to, 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 it's an easy way to start. And then within the goal, strategy, tactics, implementation control, there's, there's so much more information that we could spend all day talking about, but essentially it's supposed to flow. So you can't do anything unless you have a goal. And so as a marketer, one of the key jobs of a marketer is to make, is to agree on a good goal with leadership. And so a lot of times leadership likes to make, like to make random goals. Oh, we want to be a hundred million dollar company. Well, that's not going to be something you could ever deliver on. So I think arguing for a good goal as a marketer is one of the most important things I learned about uh, in class this year. Once you have that goal, then you can actually create a strategy. So who is your audience and what is your message message to them? Um, that's the marketer's main job. And the reason that should be the marketer's main job is because the marketer should also know uh, through the what I talked about earlier with target attractiveness, target compatibility, through that whole analysis, there should be the creation of the strategic target and an understanding of who that person is and where they hang out. And that allows you to then design tactics that will be both effective and efficient because at the end of the day, we don't have unlimited resources. So we want to make sure that we use our resources properly. And so what happens in marketing a lot, it's no, it's no surprise. A lot of people just skip right to tactics. You know, let's get an email blast out. We want to, want to go place some people, send an email out or put an ad in whatever paper. And so I think the G stick helps. Okay. If whenever you're going to do any initiative, just pull out the G-Stick and you, it doesn't have to be an elaborate Excel file with, you know, 10 pages below it. It, it just, you've got to make sure you know what the goal is. What is your strategy before you design that specific tactic? And then obviously the, the last two implementation, uh, once you decide on what those tactics are, you, you, you hit go. And then control is you've got to measure it and, and figure out if it's working or not. If you don't measure it, um, you're never going to learn from it. So, and then just repeat the process. That's uh, it's something that I think 
out of everything I've learned, I, I think I'll never forget it. G-Stick. It's just a, a simple way to make sure you're staying on track as a marketer. It's a nice framework for what I think a lot of us do almost naturally, but I think there's probably pieces missing when you do it without the framework, like you mentioned, like go directly to the tactics. So often we have, well, I need a social media strategy. And what they really mean is I want three pictures that I can post on, you know, I don't know, Instagram and Facebook to try to get somebody to, to recruit someone. I personally like the control part of it. And you didn't mention much about it, but having <laughs> the controls, knowing if it worked, tweaking it so that it does work, that that's my key point there. Okay, well, it's great, but are we getting the, the return that we are expecting? Are there things we can tweak to make that better? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah um, so uh, I was actually looking at my notes this morning and this might be a little controversial and salespeople won't like to hear this, but essentially when you look at the G-Stick framework and marketing the way it's being taught at Kellogg, sales is actually a marketing tactic. So it falls under the marketing umbrella, but I, I know not everyone looks at it that way. We're, we're marketers, so we'll cheer along with that one. We will. <laughs> they probably don't like that though. But you know, Vicky, what you're saying with control, I just want to reiterate that because so often when I'm doing strategy consulting with a client, Rob, you're exactly right. Uh, it's a very vague goal. Well, we want to grow. Well, we want to get to a random number. Like why that number? There's no really, because there's no really reason for that specific number. And there's no thought is, is that reasonable within the desired timeframe or, or the corollary? Am I willing to do what it takes in that timeframe to achieve that goal? But what I really like when you get to the strategy and the tactics, Vicki, that fits in with you is you, you need to know how you will measure success while you're picking the tactics, because so often we pick the tactics and Vicki, your example of social media is perfect. Oh, I need to be on social. Why? Everyone's on social. That's where my candidates are. That's where my clients are. I need to be there. How will you measure success? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Another one is we talk to people all the time. Well, my goal is to increase awareness. Okay. How will you measure success? What's that going to translate to? So the G stick model, I think is a great way for structured thinking that you're coming up with the controls long before you're picking the tactics that you're putting into place. So someone's going to be accountable for that tactic hitting its measurements. Absolutely. I assume that's part of strategy. And then uh, and those controls, knowing that you have the right controls because a bunch of likes, while it might boost your ego, really doesn't do much for your ROI. <laughs> <laughs> that's a controversial statement right there. <laughs> <laughs> you think your sales statement was too controversial. You're I'll right, right. feedback. <laughs> Definitely hear feedback. So let's talk about more fun stuff. You are a race car driver. <laughs> sure am. Yeah, it's, it's been a little bit since I hit the track uh, with the pandemic and not. But basically growing up my whole life, I've, I've always been, motorsports has been part of my life. My father was a, a race snowmobiles and dirt bikes when he was a kid. And so I grew up with a lot of toys. And then when he was 40, he actually got a, a birthday present from my mom. It was a Derek Daly Racing School in Las Vegas. And my mom regrets doing that till this, to this day, because that initiated what is now almost uh, well, 22 years later for him of sports car racing. And it has consumed his life during that time period. And then I got drawn into it and I've been sports car racing for about 19 years, uh, three years professionally. And really when I, I say like, how I've been, how have I seen the United States that it's, it's through race trips. I mean, I've raced everywhere from, California, Oregon, Texas, Arizona, Florida, the Northeast, uh, Canada. I've been to pretty much every track in North America and that's, that's how I've seen the world. That's amazing. That's really amazing. All right, so we'll bring it back. Go ahead, David. No, go ahead, Vicki. What from racing have you learned that you apply to your business? Yeah, so with racing, um, the, the easiest comparison is uh, project management because a race is a project. And so you go to mid Ohio, you get a practice, you have a qualifying, and then there's the race at the end of the day, there's a checkered flag, you cross the line first, second, third, and then you can analyze that result, make adjustments for the next race, the next weekend and so on. So I think what racing, I don't know if it's actually a great thing or not, but it's, it's embedded in my DNA that I look at everything like a project. And so for me personally, I think I struggle 
with longer initiatives and things that are just kind of maintaining and going on with no finish line in sight. Cause I'm so used to just, no, I need to, I need a finish line so I can evaluate. So I think that actually I, I just a light bulb went off. One of the talking about how Kellogg's helped organize my world. Um, these frameworks have really helped take some pressure off me because they're allowing me to have those checkpoints or those finish lines to, to analyze what's going on and then, uh, you know, reevaluate and then put the, put those learnings back into play. So the, from a personal perspective, it's helped me with project management from a, from a business perspective, uh, you know, you, you want to win, right? And at the end of the day, we don't have a lot of competition, but we, we do want to beat that competition when we're bidding against them. <laughs> That's awesome. I see That's that excellent. in all right, let's let's bring it home with one uh, final question, Rob. Uh, based from your perspective, what do you think the key to success is going to be in our industry in the next few years? That is a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I think we talked about the strategic target. We talked about you know making sure you serve a customer group uh, and add superior value compared to anyone else. I think. Yeah, there are 4,000 competitors or plus in staffing in the healthcare world and many more beyond that. Uh, if, if everyone focused on picking a part of it to add a superior value, that would, allow, that would allow pricing to stay up. When everyone wants to try to do the same exact thing, that puts all the power with the customer's hand and that's gonna push pricing down, profit margins. A lot of people are gonna go out of business. And so I think there's plenty of people that want to take over the general travel nurse market as just an example that I've been using today that are billion dollar companies now. And so if you're not one of those billion dollar companies, then don't even try to be that. Try to figure out where else you're going to go. Where are you going to bring superior value? And the industry as a whole, would, would, it would serve them well. It would serve all of us well if we tried to, I don't think you can, but work together and stay out of each other's space once we find those niches. Because once you start crowding that frontier, profits disappear. And so I think that is probably one of the more important things that would be extremely hard to accomplish. But if enough people start talking about it, you know, maybe at these staffing associations and whatnot, that would help out quite a bit. And then, I mean, I can't answer that question without bringing up technology. There's a lot of people that are starting to use these matching services that eliminate recruiting and so on. And so I think that if you're looking at the, where you want to go, where you want to take your staffing company, I think you do need to think about, um, you need to think about mergers and acquisitions because in a commoditized market like staffing, uh, mergers and acquisitions are going to be, are going to be rampant. And you want to make sure you set yourself up to, to, to either merge with the company, acquire another company or be acquired. Um, is, is, I think that's, that's probably it. <laughs> that's great. It's really great. I, I totally agree with you on the um, on the niche. If you can, if you've got your special place, you exit the commodity and you can price where you need to be. So often we see that doesn't happen in staffing, and everybody wants to be playing in the same ball field. We'll make your own ball field. Yeah, I, I see this race now to everybody you mentioned earlier adopting the same technology. And yes, the technology is going to improve your client experience, your candidate experience. It may improve operational efficiencies, but if 20,000 people implement the same technology in almost the exact same way, you've increased commoditization and you've put all the power in the customer's hands or right now yeah. all the power in the candidate's hands say, can go, hey, I can pull out my phone and go anywhere. So who's going to be the highest bidder? Mm -hmm. uh, what I like yeah, so much about your frontier analogy is there are gaps in the frontier that the billion dollar companies leave in their wake because they can't focus on everything mm -hmm. to move the need. If you're a billion dollar company and you want to double in size, you got to find another billion dollars in business. <laughs> if you're a $10 million company, you want to double in size, that's only 10 million in business. So there's lots of gaps that the billion dollar company will never look at mm -hmm. that could be highly profitable for you to drive growth. Absolutely. And implementing new technologies, it, 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 uh, value is now, yeah, the customer is, is receiving more value because they can they have more cost pressure on you but then it's also you're sharing profit and giving away value to these tech companies that don't necessarily need to be involved in this relationship mm -hmm. and so you have these big tech companies now that all that profit they're making if 
every, you know, just in a hypothetical world, if all 4,000 staffing companies didn't use that technology, all that money would still sit within that, in, within your market. And so I think that um, that rat race, if you will, is, is just sucking money out of the staffing market. I never thought of it till you said it way, but it, it's the prisoner's dilemma. So if you've ever, you've ever heard that, that puzzle, like two prisoners are in opposite cells and the, the jailkeeper says, well, uh, if you confess and the other guy doesn't, you get out. But he tells that to both people. Their, their optimal solution is to neither one say anything, but it's most likely both will confess. Yep. <laughs> That's funny. Absolutely. All right, Rob, if people want to get a hold of you and learn more about HuffMaster, how can they do that? Absolutely. Yeah. HuffMaster.com is our website. Pretty easy one. And my email is Rob at HuffMaster.com. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for being part of today's show. Uh, this was excellent. I think this was the most MBA-ish of any show we've done so far, but I learned a lot of new stuff. Uh, so really appreciate all your insights. Yeah. Thank you, David, Vicki. I really appreciate it. This was a lot of fun for me and I'm, I'm happy that I've been able to share my MBA experience. It's going to help, help sink in for me. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. <laughs> Wow, David, that was like stepping back into old days when you were doing your MBA, huh? Very technical. Uh, did, did you see me like a deer in headlights a few times? Like, I don't want to go back to that time. It was a little bit of shakes. <laughs> That's really good stuff, though. I mean, I, I think I learned more in that podcast than I have in many others. So um, really, really interesting um, conversation about the G-Stick framework and um, I think the operational effectiveness and productivity frontier. What was your takeaway? Um, there were a few different ones. The, for me, the G-stick is to just remind me, like we always tell people here, thinking about strategy and goal setting, like a pyramid, your goals at the top, and then your strategy is right below that. It supports the goals and the tactics are below that. And then we didn't have the implementation, but we call it the action plan layer. Right. And I don't think we ever had the control layer, but I really like that. We have had to think about the tactics based on what you want to measure but adding that control layer in, and as you said, using that control layer to then drive the next set of tactics as you iterate. I like that one. What was your G-Stick takeaway? Well, it reminds me of a continual improvement process that I learned way, way, way back in the day. Um, it's very similar framework of you know creating the goals and strategies and then your tactics to implement and having those controls. It's a very similar, constant improvement, making it better, making it better, making it better and uh, cycling through that. And that, that's really what stuck out for me, but I really, really liked having a framework and not just doing it organically. Yeah, speaking of framework, the, the productivity frontier that he talked about, I had never heard that term before, but the idea of thinking about where you play, if you're, if you're creating the frontier, and what's interesting is you can create the frontier at the low end, at the high end, or anywhere in the middle, but knowing where you play and as he said, where we provide more value than anyone else on the planet, that's sort of the Jim Collins, good to great, defining your hedgehog and your flywheel for people who have read the book. Mm -hmm. But knowing how do we generate revenue in a way that we're delivering value that people can't get anywhere else, we rarely see that in most businesses. Well, I think it comes down to where do you, what's that unique differentiator where are you going to invest your money? Because if you're investing to keep up, you're not, you're just getting farther and farther behind. You have to be investing to get in front and to do something unique. And most people are investing to fix problems mm -hmm. rather than to build on strengths. And it's just like managing people. People are going to be more successful when you help them exploit their strengths than when you're constantly trying to correct their weaknesses. The same with businesses. If I've got a lead in somebody in one area and I slow down to fix my weaknesses, yeah, I may eliminate some problems, get rid of some headaches, but I've allowed the competition to catch me at my strengths. And long-term, that's way more detrimental than if I put the investment into building today's strength and tomorrow's strength into next day's strength so that I'm further and further ahead. Well, it becomes very difficult for someone else to duplicate if you're constantly reinventing yourself and making yourself stronger and better and more differentiated, right? Absolutely. Of course. And being a race driver, I had a feeling you'd like that one because uh, this may surprise our listeners, but you're the lead foot in the family. And so I figured <laughs> you really like the driving. 
I like fast cars. <laughs> I can't, I can't deny it, but I love that a race car is a race is like a project. That was great. And you could just see it in the in things that um, Rob lit up talking about. Obviously he's, he very much is a um, process oriented person. And, you know, I, that's my thing. I love that. I also expected him to say a little bit that racing helps him really improve focus and thinking about that competitive spirit. You talk about it a little bit in a different way, but I was thinking, you know, in a race car, obviously you have to be focused or you're going to end up in a wall. Mm-hmm. And our life today is about not being focused. And our biggest business challenges, we spend all day long answering email. Think about what you, if you were driving a race car with your cell phone in your hand, trying to keep up with your Slack messages and incoming emails and everything you need to respond to, it'd be a disaster. You'd be dead. Well, we, but we do it in business. And that's the race car we're all driving every day. Yeah, that's very true. How about um, the conversation at the very end when we talked about the keys to success and staff, staffing going forward? I thought that was pretty interesting. I love the idea of figuring out how to work together as an industry, but I can't see how that's really going to practically work. But if instead of trying to be like everybody else, because this, you know, this is the technology, everybody's implementing an automation platform. Yeah, we want automation but only as it plays to our strengths. Yeah, we want to think about building an online app or an online staffing business as it plays to our strengths. If we're playing catch up because other people in the industry are doing it, as Rob said, we're all collectively investing money that we're taking out of our pocket, giving to somebody else is not going to result in more margin going back into our pocket. That, that to me was a fascinating observation. Me too. That's not something I had thought about before and something I want to give more thought to. All right. Well, that was a great one. Are you all good? I am all good. So I want to thank everybody for listening to today's episode of Secrets of Staffing Success. Hopefully you enjoyed the show. If you like what you heard or even just got feedback for us, please leave us a review, add a comment, email us. We would love to hear your thoughts on what we can do to make the show even better for you. Thank you so much. Bye.